Hello, beloveds, and welcome to Christian Emotional Recovery, a podcast for those who are survivors of childhood trauma, emotional neglect, and narcissistic abuse. This podcast is hosted by Rachel Leroy, a college professor and trauma survivor. Many of us spend years trying to heal and don't get anywhere. We don't always target the trauma itself, which is so often what keeps us stuck. This podcast is where faith meets science. Rachel is an emotional healing expert with 20 years of experience applying healing modalities that helped her start making progress after nothing else worked. She'll show you how to do the same. Each week, we'll cover a topic that will show you how to heal trauma for good. Please check out our website and show notes at christianemotionalrecovery.com and join the Facebook community, Trauma Survivors Unite Christian Emotional Recovery. Hello, everybody. This is Rachel Leroy from Christian Emotional Recovery, and this is episode nine of season two of Christian Emotional Recovery. And today we are doing the last episode in the series on narcissistic abuse. This is season two, episode nine in the series on narcissistic abuse. And this week we're doing the impact of narcissistic abuse on our relationship with God. Ooh, that's some good stuff right there. So stay tuned and listen up because um, I think there's a lot that you'll learn from this episode. And I'll tell you, thank you so much for listening because I'm learning so much just by doing the studying and the reading and, and going through these articles. I'm learning so much about my own faith walk and about how the past can impact our relationship with God. So stay tuned. So this is the fourth episode in the series on narcissistic abuse. It's the final one, and this is season two, episode nine. Now, um, if you haven't, please click the subscribe button and subscribe to the podcast. Check out on Facebook the Facebook group called... Christian Emotional Recovery, Trauma Survivors Unite. I also have a YouTube channel that I would like to get more active, and I'd like to get more people on there listening to it. There is exclusive content, more talks, more you can learn. It's more honed in. It's more specialized topics, but they're also shorter bits, usually from about 10 to 25 minutes, give or take. So go to the YouTube channel. Just type in Christian Emotional Recovery. I'll also include the links of all of those in the show notes, as always. But please subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't, you're missing out, go check it out. And I think there's a lot of stuff there that will help you and help you on your faith walk and help you on your recovery walk as well. So check those out. Let's go ahead and jump into the episode on how narcissistic abuse from our past, particularly our childhood, can impact our relationship with God. And it does a lot more than we realize. It does a lot more than we realize. So in this episode, we will cover how does this happen? How does narcissistic abuse, rigid religious environments, 
other forms of abuse and neglect, how do those impact our relationship with God? And I'll talk about how we tend to take that. It's not our fault. It's not our fault. But we take what we learn in childhood that is distorted and we project it onto sometimes our healthy relationships with other people, but also our relationship with God. And so the first thing we'll talk about is how that happens and how that starts with our programming based on how we're treated as children and beyond and in relationships. And then I'll identify distorted views of God and share my experiences. So what are some of those distorted views that we have? And I actually have sources to show you what some of those distortions are and how they can impact our relationship with God and how we interact with God when certain things happen, how we react. And then I'll talk about when we start to separate our projections from God for Um, who he really is with those distortions, how that can start to repair and heal our relationship with God and our concept of ourselves. That's a double whammy. When we project, we're projecting based on our own distortions within our own mind. So if we can start to heal our view of ourselves and our view of God, that's a win-win and that allows us to fully repair our relationship with God and see God for who he really is, a loving, kind, generous, even lavish God who wants good things for us and wants a rich, abundant life for us. And then lastly, we'll talk about specific ways to do the healing work to separate, to change, and to rework our projections of God to be ones that are accurate, that are healing, and that are based in the Word of God and based in healthy psychology. So like I said, all of these are combining science slash psychology and faith So that's what this podcast is all about, and we're definitely doing that here. Now, this episode, most of the sources are more anecdotal, but there's still so much experiential research that backs this up, and a lot of this is time-tested because some of these sources are actually pretty old. So this is stuff that's been going on for a long time about how to reprogram our misconceptions about God. So let's go ahead and get started. First of all, a little bit about what happens when we project our misconceptions onto God because we've been misprogrammed in our minds ourselves by no fault of our own. And sometimes by no fault of those around us and our caretakers because they're just passing down the distortions they were taught. And sometimes they, they never wake up, so to speak. They never become aware. And that's why we talk about mindfulness and awareness and consciousness. And you can't reprogram that stuff unless you're aware it's there. And that's why waking up to this stuff is so, so, so important. So just a little bit about this. Um, First of all, when we're raised in a narcissistic, by narcissistic others, or in a narcissistic environment, or by alcoholics, by people in denial, by people who are very toxic or unhealthy and or abusive, that's not always that we're raised by bad people. Sometimes maybe, but also it's complicated. But because we're young and impressionable, we, if we're especially raised in a strict and rigid environment, particularly if we were raised in a strict and 
rigid religious environment, we can have a twisted notion of who God is, what he's like, and what he's like for us. Because we're young and impressionable, we believe whatever we're told when we're young. We have nothing else to go on, right? So you may have been taught distorted things about God, perhaps even by your caretakers or parents who were narcissistic or narcissistically abused themselves and had unhealed trauma themselves. Unfortunately, they will project those distortions onto God and then teach their children, you, me, other people, around them, these distortions as well. And then they also model it through concrete behavior, which is how we learn the most. And so we pick up those things and then we project them back onto and interact with God in the same way that we do with our parents and other caretakers. Additionally, how you're treated by authority figures in your life will also connect to how you perceive God is since we see God as an authority figure. He's the ultimate authority figure. And, uh, you know, we could get into religious figures like preachers and priests and rabbis and Sunday school teachers and other religious authorities, but that's another podcast for another time. But we will touch on that because I do want to do in the future a an episode on religious abuse. I think that's a really important one to cover. But continuing, in some ways, there is a continuation of how caretakers treat us and how we believe God treats us, and perceives us as well. It can be so distorted, damaging, and difficult to see when we're in it, especially when we're children. We don't become fully self-aware when we're children, so we don't know what's happening. And then we take that sort of hypnotic brainwave state into adulthood and don't question any of that. Especially if it's religious, we're scared to question it because we're scared that God will hate us or punish us or we'll go to hell if we even question it. But it's important to examine our beliefs and why we have them and where they come from. And ironically, ironically, by doing so in a healthy and loving way, we can actually restore restore our relationship with God, we can actually find the kingdom of God within us where we haven't found it before, and we can find peace where we haven't before by doing this healing work with God's help. So even as adults, we take the programming we received as children and project it onto a real and loving God, and our views of God as a result We see God as punitive, twisted, and dysfunctional, and or our views of God are punitive, twisted, and dysfunctional, when that's not who God really is. So that's why it's so important to go back to the Word, to use objectivity, to use consciousness and mindfulness, and to heal the distorted views we have of God by healing our trauma. It directly impacts and even damages our relationship with God. And I'm going to tell you, share some personal experiences because I have wrestled with God my entire life. I would consider myself somebody after God's own heart, but my relationship with God has been tumultuous, to say the least. And this is something I haven't told a lot of people, except for a few people close to me. There was even a time for about a year when I became an agnostic and stopped believing in God because it got so bad. I was in so much pain. And if that happens to you, I also believe that people should be shown compassion that are hurt so bad by church, by doctrines that are twisted, and by unkind and unloving Christians that their relationship with God is damaged so badly that they become an atheist. That is just sad. It's sad. 
And I think that a lot of that can be prevented and changed and healed if we can teach people about a loving God, if we can teach people with clear and accurate doctrine, and if we can show people where cognitive distortions about their own beliefs about God can sometimes get them all twisted up and they trip and fall over their own misconceptions. You see what I'm saying? So I think it's important that we teach people about a loving and caring and kind God, and I would rather go too far. How can you overteach the love of God? How can you overteach the grace of God? That doesn't mean it's a permission to go sin. It doesn't mean that because of grace, oh, well, I can just go out smoking and drinking and having sex with whoever I want and then come home and God will forgive me when I go to church on Sunday and pray. That's not how it works. If our relationship with a human is genuine, we wouldn't do that to them. So if our relationship with God is genuine, we allow that grace to give us space to make mistakes, but we don't make mistakes on purpose just because we can. You see the difference? So Back to this, we take how we're treated as children or even vulnerable adults into in abusive situations and we project them onto God. If someone constantly states, acts, likes, or implies we're not good enough because of narcissistic abuse, other forms of abuse, neglect, we'll feel like God is telling us the same thing. We'll feel like we're a terrible person who can't do anything right. We'll feel like we're not important to God. We'll think God thinks about us even though he that bad things about us, even though he doesn't. We won't think that God is pleased or satisfied with us. We won't think that God accepts us because that's not how we were treated as children. And that's our programming. So we'll assume that about God, even though we don't do it on purpose sometimes. But we'll have trouble believing God loves us as we are, is pleased with us, and wants good things for us. And if we do, we'll believe there are catches or we'll be walking on eggshells waiting for the other shoe to drop. Sound familiar? I know I've experienced that, like we did around the narcissist or similar human being. So that's why it's so vital to know who God is, to meditate on who God is, to meditate on who we are in him, and to partake in who God is, dwell in who God is. But these people had all the authority and power, and since God does too, we assume he's like that too, but he's not. And then when difficult situations or disappointments come, especially big ones or a series of those, we think God is withholding, cold, stingy, miserly, punishing, and angry. And I wonder if people, like I said, have left the faith because they have projected these unfortunate distortions in their programming onto a good, loving, lavish, merciful, and graceful God um, because they believe he's cold, withholding, mean, judgmental, and hateful. But God is a holy God, and there is a place for judgment. But God is more about mercy and kindness and justice and generosity and loving and gracious and wonderful and good. Think about all the fruits of the Spirit. Fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit is one of the parts of God. And if those are the qualities of God then that's who he is, right? So there it is. Okay, so let's go ahead and start on the first section. I just wanted to start with sort of an overview of the concept here. I, I'll start with, a say, I'm going to do a 30-minute podcast, and then it ends up being an hour and 10 minutes. I, I hope that's okay. Forgive me. But I there's just so much I want to teach and so much I want to learn about this stuff that I want to share it with you. So thank you so much for going on this journey with me. 
So first, let's talk about how it happens. How do we start with our programming so that our views of authority figures and God become distorted as well? So when we are raised by narcissists or people with narcissistic traits, like I said, in a religious, rigid environment or abused or neglected long term, or if we're in a long term relationship like that, that can happen too over years. Um, but we believe these qualities that our caretakers have are also what God is like. And we often are taught erroneous concepts about God and also modeled through behavior erroneous concepts about God, what God is like. Because our caretakers are also projecting those qualities onto what they believe about God and that they were taught. Because as children, we have no other frame of reference for what God is like, who God is, or who we are. And so if you were like me, and you were taught that God punished you because you did something wrong, but then you were also taught that God loves you and God is gentle and kind and you can come to Him, you might have been a little confused because a lot of that didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to me either. I always questioned everything by nature. I was born that way. I would be like, why? That was one of my first words. And I drove my parents and everybody around me crazy. And I never stopped being curious. I never stopped asking questions. And I've never stopped asking why. It's, I believe, made me a kind, informed, and enlightened person, but it's also caused a lot of turmoil in my life. So it's it's a mixed bag, a mixed blessing. But as a result, we'll see God in that rigid way, especially if we're raised in a religious environment. Like I said, I was raised Southern Baptist to a T conservative, the typical child from the 1980s and 90s, if you know anything about all the things about that, like purity culture. But anyway, as a result, um, it's sad because we can be deceived about who God is in the place where we're taught this is the correct thing about God. So we don't question it. And then because it is God and the Bible and absolute authority and where we go when we die, we're scared to even question any of that. And so there's no way we could have been deceived by well-meaning people who taught us about God and Jesus and salvation and all that, right? Well, you know what? We can be taught wrong things and we can be deceived. And I don't think it's on purpose on the parts of most of those people, but keep listening. So however unintentionally by those well-meaning people around us that taught us about Jesus and about God and about the nature of God, keep in mind that we get some things right too. It's not like it's all wrong. But if we've never had a chance to determine for ourselves and question until we get older and educate ourselves about abuse and who we are in Christ... Our beliefs about God, the nature of God, and Jesus could be incorrect. Um, Where our beliefs about God have been distorted is something that we need to work on. Because I believe that even children that weren't raised in a rigid environment where they were taught about a lavish and loving God in biblical sense, that even those people may have some distorted beliefs. But if you were taught in a very rigid situation, if your parents or caretakers were narcissists, alcoholics, neglectful, or other forms of abuse and toxicity, then you probably have a lot of foundational views about God that are distorted, not just minor things. So some people can even live their whole lives and not realize this and then die still thinking God is a loving God, but if he gets mad at me, he's going to punish me and withhold and all that stuff. 
or not believing it's possible that well-meaning authority figures in their lives have intentionally or unintentionally misled them. It's hard to believe that, but it is true. It does happen. Is it true in every case? No, but it does happen. And those in league with even higher authority figures in their lives, so they must be right and in line with God's true nature and authority. And who are we to question that? It's scary, right? But I think it is our place to humbly and carefully and with discernment and with counseling and objectivity and the word as our shield and our rampart and our sword to question those things. Yes, it is healthy and even good to question those things within that context. So we feel like we can't question any of that, but often we start to deconstruct these misrepresentations and see that indeed this can happen even when we're young. So this um, podcast is not about deconstruction. I know there's a whole deconstruction movement, and I think there are some wonderful things about it that's very healthy, and I think some of it can be taken so far that people become despair and start to lose their entire faith and their entire hope in Christ. This is not what we're talking about here. Deconstruction here, what I'm talking about, is deconstructing not your entire faith necessarily. That's another argument for another time. But this is about deconstructing what you were taught about your faith, what you were taught about the nature of God. Okay, so that's what we're talking about here. An article called Healing Distorted Concepts of God. It's from Splashes from Wellsprings. And I don't see an author. Oh, Brian Burke. Brian Burke is the author. And he's a minister, an ordained pastor at the Wesleyan Church. I'm assuming he is um, Methodist. I like to embrace a wide variety of Christian mainstream sources, all the way from Protestant to non-denominational to Catholic to unaffiliated, because I believe that wide variety gives us a better view of it's I just I like to embrace the diversity of Christianity within the realm of solid doctrine if that makes sense so listen to this it backs up what I was just saying in that point it says we've all asked the question and heard these voices at times over the course of our lives we often find ourselves asking these questions during times of intense suffering while there is nothing wrong with pouring our hearts out to God in times of distress and asking these tough questions Consider the Psalms, for example. We need to be aware that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. That's based on John 8, 44. There are passages in Revelation that talk about the devil being the um, accuser, which is a form of deceit as well. And there's a lot of other ones, too. He seeks to kill he, um, to kill and destroy. Um, he lies to God's children about who God is who we are, and about others around us. Therefore, he will take painful experiences of life, like our foundations, even there. That's what's so messed up is we're children. We never even had a chance to get correct views of God. But we can correct our views of God now. But it says he lies to God's children about who God is, who we are, and about others around us. Therefore, he will take painful experiences of our lives and tries to try to raise up thoughts against God in our minds. 2 Corinthians 10.5, he will try to confuse, twist, and pervert our view of God and his character. This has often resulted in distorted concepts of God that can negatively influence 
our lives. Okay, so that um, there are scriptures that back this up. This is stuff, when you get into this stuff, you have to be really careful. But this is backed by many scriptures. Now, people tend to project their own traits or beliefs onto God. And since we are programmed in our childhood, and if we're programmed with misconceptions, then we will project those misconceptions onto God and believe that's who he really is because we don't know anything else. You know, so if we're raised by a narcissist who is rigid, withholding, harsh, judgmental, angry, stingy, cold, and miserly, or in some cases they may be those things, but also at times generous and kind and fun and gentle, it gets even more confusing. It's inconsistent, right? But people will project these traits onto God and teach them to us, though perhaps well-meaning. Remember that traits of a narcissist are what we will start to see God as if we are immersed in those traits and treated based on those traits with whoever's around us from childhood. That's our primary programming. Sucks, right? Unfair, right? But if you can separate those, it can be healed. And this is another way to do it. And that's why really quickly from some of the earlier episodes about the series on narcissistic abuse, I want to review the nine traits of a narcissist just to remind you so that you can see ways that how that treatment, if it was projected onto you, you might also project these traits onto God because you project authority figure traits onto God from your childhood. So real quickly, um, nine traits of a nar- and symptoms of narcissism. Nine signs and symptoms of narcissism. This was from... Uh, E-Medicine Health, John P. Kuna was the author. And like I said, this was a source I used when I was going over what narcissism is and all that. Grandiosity, exaggerated sense of self-importance, feeling superior to others and that one deserves special treatment. Feelings often accompanied by fantasies of unlimited success, brilliant power, beauty, and love. Now imagine if we project that onto God, that he's more interested in looking good and you know it's not that we don't glorify god that's not that's not what this is talking about but the grandiosity is like i expect it i'm entitled to it worship me you see the difference between worshiping a loving and and god and glorifying him versus like this sort of twisted sense of it excessive need for admiration must be the center of attention often monopolizes conversations, feels slighted, mistreated, or depleted and enraged when ignored. So if we forget to pray for one day, we'll think, well, God is mad at us and he's going to punish me. Or he's withheld this thing from me because I forgot to read my Bible two days in a row. Superficial and exploitative relationships. We'll feel like God is just out for what he can get from us. Now, we are to serve God and we are to help other people and to love our neighbor. But we do that from a place of overflowing grace because of we love God because he first loved us. You see? Lack of empathy. Ooh, can you imagine a God that has no empathy? That is harsh. That is not who God is. That is how we project onto God if we've been treated by people that way. Identity disturbance. Sense of self is highly superficial, rigid, and fragile. We see God as rigid, superficial, and fragile. That's messed up. God is none of those things. He is authentic. He is kind and generous. And he is tough. He can handle it if you tell him how you really feel. 
Self-stability depends on maintaining the view that one is exceptional. Okay, well, God is God. God is exceptional. So some of these don't apply, but you get the idea. Difficulty with attachment and dependency relies on feedback from the environment. In other words, insecure. God is not insecure. God is God. God knows who he is. He doesn't need our validation. He wants our trust and our worship because he's God, not because he's some bottomless pit that can't be satisfied. Chronic feelings of emptiness and boredom. Uh, Vulnerability to life transitions. So those are some of the qualities of a narcissist. And when they treat you based on those qualities, and then you are helpless. And so you have to mold yourself into this person to survive. Then you project those traits onto God because you're still trying to survive because that's how you're conditioned to interact with other entities, whether they're people or they're God. And so you can see how, um, you know, you can connect those narcissistic traits to how they're projected onto God when you're caretakers model that kind of behavior and then you have to act in a certain way in order to survive, then we also project that behavior onto God. Okay? You see it? So distorted views of God and identifying those. Let's identify some distorted views of God and share um, a little bit about how those distorted views of God are connected to what we talked about in the first category. As we get older and from our own beliefs about God and authority figures, we project our incorrect and harmful programming onto God. I said that about a million times. Including the damaging qualities we believe God possesses. I just listed some above. There are others. Um, This can also cause us to retreat from God, secretly resent God, re-traumatize us as we try to build a relationship with God because it's so messed up. And there are a lot of other ways we can, um, it can cause permanent damage and harm to God's relationship with us. And so we project what we learn onto our relationship with God and this causes us harm. And then we start to see God as doing harm actively in our lives because we can't separate things that are happening in our environment with God causing them directly and purposefully. You see the difference? And then we project those qualities onto God based on those experiences. As we get older, we project this programming onto God even though God isn't this way. Um, so there are distortions that we have about God. Let's look at some of those. Now, there's a couple of articles here I'm going to share. I'm going to share one that starts off just identifying the distortions, and then I'm going to go through some of the distortions and show how those are incorrect and what in comparison is correct in terms of who God is based on both scripture and psychological well-being. So first, let's talk about what the distortions are, our distorted concepts of God. Now, there's an article called Healing Distorted Concepts of God. And this one is from Splashes from Wellsprings, the one I mentioned a little earlier. I read a paragraph from it. And this one is nine distortions. Now, when I go through and show you how to correct based on scripture and other objective truths, we'll do six of these, okay? But overall, these are all kind of collective and they're separated 
sort of subjectively. So nine categories, six, eh, I don't think it really matters as long as we're going over some of the big ones of how we have a distorted view of God. So bear with me here because I'm going to read through this list. It's a little long, but I think it's really helpful. And I want you, when we're going through this list, if you need to pause the recording and stop and reflect on and maybe even write a little bit about, do I have that view of God? Has that impacted my relationship with God? Do I project this belief about God onto him? So let's look at them. The first one is the distant God, the distant God. And it says people who hold this image of God in their hearts and minds feel like God is distant and detached from reality. He is uninterested and uninvolved in their daily lives. The transcendent God sits on his throne in heaven, but has absolutely no participation in our lives. I think that's what theists or deists I can't remember, but one of some of our founding fathers, that's what they believed about God. They were monotheistic, but a lot of them were very skeptical about mainstream Christianity. Anyway, in addition, these people feel like God is also emotionally distant, cold, unsympathetic, inattentive, and unapproachable. Do you see some of the common traits with narcissism there? And then it says, they wonder in their hearts and minds, does God really understand what I'm going through? Does he even care? Okay, number two distortion, the angry God. This is one I've struggled with, the angry God. This is a view of God, the Punisher. We're not talking about the Netflix show, but you could you could almost see it that way if it's that messed up. Who stands ready to condemn and punish his children for every sin they commit. His fierce wrath burns against evildoers, and they will pay the price for their sins. Therefore, people who have this image of God live in constant fear of judgment, fear they will be zapped, quote, by God if they make the slightest mistake. They also tend to view every form of suffering in their lives as, quote, punishment from God. It's the only lens through which they view God and interpret the circumstances of life. Case in point, I won't go into any detail about this, but when I was growing up, I suffered from severe depression. And when I was a young adult, I talked to a certain person that was close to me who was very religiously oriented, let's put it that way. And I asked them, why am I experiencing depression. Why can't I overcome this? What I've done everything. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Of course, you've all heard the stupid stuff like you're not praying enough. You're not reading the Bible enough. You don't have enough faith and all that crap that we've been lied to and taught our whole lives. If you've experienced trauma and you have wiring in your brain and and chemicals in your brain that are not allowing you to overcome that, no amount of praying and no amount of reading the Bible is just going to make that stuff go away. And if it's not going away, there's nothing wrong with you. But I was told that God was punishing me because of sin in my life. That's what I was taught. And I don't want to get into it too much, but let's just say that I didn't want to live for a little while after that. That is so messed up to tell somebody who has a mental illness and is in despair and is doing everything they can and they're stuck in trauma. You don't tell somebody that. I don't care. You just don't tell somebody that. The only way to heal somebody is to get to the roots of that trauma. And if there is sin, then that's something that can be dealt with separately from that. If there's a connection, then God can show you that connection. But I don't believe in, if you don't have proof for sure and you don't know for sure, be careful what you say to people like that. That can cause so much damage. So 
Back to our points here. Distortion number three, the God who abandons. The God who abandons. People with this concept of God believe God abandoned them when they endured a very painful or abusive situation in their lives. God didn't come through for them. He didn't protect them, nor did he stop the abuse from happening. That's a hard one because I can't, I don't have answers. I don't know why God doesn't stop abuse. A a three-year-old girl gets molested. A 10-year-old boy is beaten within an inch of his life. I mean, trigger warning, but it, it happens and they're innocent and they don't deserve it. And I don't know why it happens. I don't have an answer for that, but I can tell you this, God did not do it. It was a person that did it to an innocent human being that did it. So they say God didn't come through for them. He didn't protect them, nor did he stop the abuse from happening. Therefore, they feel like God abandoned them when they needed him the most. They often think that if God really loved them, that he wouldn't have allowed those horrible things to happen. That's a tough one. I'll argue that it's a tough one. But I don't believe that God caused those things to happen. Number four, the abuse of God. The abuse of God. Unfortunately, too many people in our world experience horrendous abuse in various forms at the hands of parents, relatives, friends, classmates, and even in church. I added that. But their experience of verbal, physical, emotional, sexual, or spiritual abuse can shatter their image of a loving God. Duh, you know. Instead, they often begin to view God as an abusive God, and they perceive him to be a cruel bully, quote, who is easily angered and demanding. You see how that becomes a projection. Sadly, God becomes the ultimate abusive authority figure in their lives. Number five, the perfectionistic God. This distorted image of God sees him as impossible to please. God's standards are so high that we can never possibly measure up to his expectations. We always fall short. We always fail. God's demands are never ending. Some people even refer to him as the God of impossible expectations. This harsh view of God often drives people to total exhaustion and utter despair as they spend most of their life trying to please him through good works, services, if only they did more than God would love them. That's what the Bible says is works of the flesh. And that's where grace comes in, and we'll come back to grace in a little bit. Now, one note about this. I do believe that God does have high standards, and I do believe that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that's where grace covers our sins, and that's why Christ came to die for our sins, and we are already redeemed in Him ongoingly. So that means that while we do fall short and while God's expectations are high, we are made complete in him so that that doesn't mean that God is mad at us. We have been redeemed. You see what I'm saying? We are in a place where we're already accepted and perfect and whole because of what Christ did for us in Christ. Okay? Grace. Number six. God, the cosmic killjoy. This seems to be one of the most common distorted concepts of God in the Western world today. And I'll argue, this is just my opinion, a little aside. I think Calvinism influenced this a lot. And that's why this is just my opinion. You can have a different one. I think Calvinism is a bunch of crap. I think I don't buy into Calvinism. And I think if you're in a recovery lifestyle, Calvinism is the last thing you need. Okay, back to this. This is the God who doesn't want his children to, quote, have fun. 
He doesn't want them to be happy or enjoy life. God is out to make them miserable. Thus, they perceive all of God's laws and commands to be negative, narrow, and restrictive of their own personal freedoms. They also see Christian life as boring, uninteresting, and unadventurous. As a result, they have trouble believing Jesus' promises that he came to give abundant life and life to the full. John 10.10 10. A little note about this. God does have high standards, and God does expect our moral aptitude in our lives, to set an example. But I grew up constantly frozen in fear about what other Christians would think of me based on every little thing I did. I didn't think I could be myself. I didn't think I could have my quirky sense of humor. I didn't think that I could laugh my head off about things and just be silly and interesting and adventurous and enjoy life. For some reason, I felt like those were sins. Tell me where in the Bible we're having a stupid sense of humor and laughing a lot and enjoying life and being adventurous and being goofy is a sin. Because I think that those things are great and I think those are part of the joy of the Lord. And I found that the more that I've learned about the nature of God, the crazier and the kookier I feel free to be in a certain sense, if that makes sense. So if you're weird, if you're uh, quirky, if you have a raw or a dad joke or a dry sense of humor, have at all that stuff. Be yourself. God made you to be who you are. So be who you are. That doesn't mean you go around sinning. It just means that you're a full person and you can enjoy being that full person with your weird sense of humor and your friends that are all weird like you. That's great. Go for it. Number seven, the untrustworthy God. The untrustworthy God. People who hold this negative image of God think of him as being unreliable. He is a God who makes promises he does not keep. These folks have often experienced disappointment with God and feel like God has let them down. And if they've been disappointed and let down by parents, friends, and other authority figures in their lives, they are more apt to see God as untrustworthy as well. They often fear they cannot really trust God's promises of help, rescue, and deliverance in times of trouble. Number eight, the God who withholds, the God who withholds. This perverted concept of God believes that he doesn't provide but he actually withholds good things from his children. Most biblical scholars believe that this is one of the biggest lies that Adam and Eve believed about God in the Garden of Eden. Why would God forbid them from eating from one of the trees in the middle of the garden? Why would he withhold something good? The subtle deception of the enemy eventually led them into sin. People who hold this view of God tend to struggle with overwhelming fear, doubt, worry, and anxiety that can sometimes be debilitating or paralyzing. Number nine, the God who is weak and powerless. The God who is weak and powerless. People who think of God in this way have a hard time believing that God is all-powerful, which he is. The struggle to understand why there is so much evil and suffering in the world is there. After all, if God is all-powerful, then why doesn't he put an end to it? This faulty view of God is weak and somehow that God is weak and somehow needs our help, quote, can lead some to play God in their own lives and in the lives of others. They may even think that God needs them to, quote, take control and be in charge of life circumstances, which can lead to overly controlling behaviors. I've been guilty of this one. I've been like, I can only rely on myself because God's not coming through for me because I have had some bad experiences in the past. So those are some of the common distortions from this article in Splashes from Wellsprings that 
they go into a lot of detail and they talk about it in a very clear and helpful way. So just a little bit more there. You can see when you look at those, the traits of a narcissist, the parallels with the programming, that would also be how we would project onto God. Now, how we would view a person is different than how we would view God. So you've got to make some the transition there when you see how you project. But you, do you see how the connective tissue is there for those cognitive distortions about God? In the list of nine traits that I mentioned earlier, ask yourself what about those traits connects with some of those distortions in the article. So, you know, like I said, there's there's a connection there and you can clearly see it when you start to think about it. But that's how we begin to interact with God where we become angry, re-traumatized, we don't trust God, we're hurt, we're disappointed, we resent God, we're fearful of God, and we even end up in despair. And on top of that, you're not supposed to talk about stuff like that at church and with other Christians. And so a lot of people keep that stuff inside, and sometimes they're even scared to talk about it with God within themselves. And I'm telling you, there needs to be a safe space where Christians can talk about all of these things. Because if we don't, The numbers in the church are just going to keep shrinking. It needs to be a safe space where Christians can take their most vulnerable fears, disappointments, hurts, angers, and resentments and talk about them safely without condemnation because that's where healing begins. And that's what I believe the church should be and what the church should be like. It should not be a place where you can look, show people how great of a Christian you are and all these great things you're doing and people are afraid to be honest. It needs to be a place where people can be real and they can be vulnerable and they can do their deepest healing work. That's what the church is for, in my opinion. Another tangent. But let's go ahead and move on to the next section. When we start to separate our projections onto God with from who he really is. But when we start to do that and our erroneous programming, um, we also separate that with who he really is. We can start to heal our relationship with God and our concept of ourselves. I'll say that again. When we start to separate our projections onto God with who he really is, and our erroneous programming from who we really are in Him, we can start to heal our relationship with God and our concept of ourselves. And I believe those two things are inseparable. Our concept of ourselves is how we're going to believe about God, right? So if we heal our concept of ourselves and our relationship and programming about God at the same time, that's where we cover everything, Okay, so it's important to separate those two and get clarity on who God really is and who we really are in him. And so let's talk a little bit about some of this. Now, there's just too much to possibly go through everything about who God is, who we are in him and all that. So we're going to stick to some basics here. There is an article by an author called Rachel Britton, Rachel Britton, and it's called How to Overcome Your Distorted View of God as a Father. How to Overcome a Distorted View of God as a Father. And I'm going to read a couple of sections here. There's a section called God the Father of the Gospels, 
and another one called God the Father in the letters to Paul and God the Father in our lives today and what Jesus shows us about God our Father. And I'm going to go through a little bit of each of those sections to help us to start thinking about reprogramming who God is actually for us in our lives. So first, how to overcome our distorted view of God as Father. Now, it does talk about God the Father in the Old Testament, and I will argue that most Christians can acknowledge that there's some stuff there that's problematic. And, you know, but we have the New Covenant. We have Christ, and we have God who is merciful and who is kind. Now, it talks about God the Father in the Gospels, and it says, Father is the predominant way Jesus refers to God. This is not surprising, bearing in mind that Jesus is the Son of God. What is unique, says Robert Stein in the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology, is that God as Father is not just a way Jesus taught his disciples to address God, but the way. What's more, Jesus called God Abba, which implies intimacy in the relationship with God. Now, this is a separate aside, but I remember somewhere I've heard a lot of people say, Daddy? Is probably the closest thing. Abba, Daddy God. And that's intimate. That's endearing. That's trust. And that's what our relationship with God should be based on who He really is. And so um, the next section, there's a little more there. You could read this whole article. I'll put it in the show notes. God the Father in the letters of Paul. And it says it's not surprising that the Apostle Paul continues Jesus' teaching of addressing God as the Father, Abba, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is common throughout Paul's letters, and it lists several scriptures where that happens. Now, however, the relationship with God the Father is not as creator as in Deuteronomy, but through a connection with Jesus. This is how the early Christians understood their relationship with God the Father, just like we do today. And so then God the Father in our lives today It says, through belief in Jesus Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit, we have been adopted into God's families as his sons and daughters, Roman 8, 15. And it tells us the spirit you received brought you about your adoption to sonship and daughtership. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. So by him, we cry, Daddy, God. And so when we need something, when we want to talk to God, and when we just want to know he's there, we say, Daddy God, where are you? Just like a little girl or a little boy who skins their knee and they run to their daddy and they they cry and they're like, God, um, but not God, it's daddy, you know? So that's the way we can come to God as he really is without those distortions. And so it goes on. I won't go into all that. But then it says what Jesus shows us about God, our father. Jesus gave dignity to people deprived of their worth. He healed lepers so they could re-enter society, Matthew 17. He healed a woman hemorrhaging blood so that she was no longer ritually unclean and could return to a normal life, Luke 8. Jesus restored a demon-possessed man to his right mind, Mark 5, and acquitted a woman called an adultery, John 8. So when your dignity has been taken away through verbal, emotional, or sexual abuse, then remember God your Father spends time with those humiliated and disgraced by their conditions and restores their self-respect. Remember that Jesus said, you will know the Father by knowing me. So if you look to Jesus and his behaviors when he interacted with other people, that's how God interacts with us as well. 
So this is accurate. Jesus showed overwhelming compassion to individuals he encouraged in crowds and followed him. So God does too. He felt pity not only for their spiritual state, but their physical conditions too. Even when wanting solitude, Jesus continued to preach, heal, and drive out demons as people clamored for him. When all you've known is an absent father or parent or caretaker, I would add to this, whether due to death, work, or divorce, and I would also add abandonment or indifference, and you question your heavenly father's care for you, then be reminded that God never turns you away when you need him. He is not like our earthly human beings. Jesus responded intimately to those who needed him. He led a blind man by the hand away from the villagers before putting spit on the man's eyes and healing him, Mark 8. He shooed out the crowd to be alone with a girl and her family before taking her hand and bringing her back to life, Matthew 9. So when your father has shown you little or no affection or attention, remember your heavenly father does not keep you at arm's length. Jesus began his ministry announcing the good news in the time of God's favor. If your father has been authoritarian or stern with you and you fear reprisals for disobedience, then remember you are living in a time of God's favor when through faith in Jesus you are given freedom. And it says, ultimately, Jesus showed God's love for us through his death. If you've never felt truly loved by your earthly I'm going to say caretakers here instead of father. Remember how God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die for you because he loves you. As Romans 8.39b says, nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God demonstrated by our Lord Jesus Christ when he died for us. That is the nature of God. That is who he is to us. That is who we need to believe he is for us. Our understanding of God our Father may be flawed, but when we look to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can more fully know God as our Father. And I would say it would also heal our distortions that we've projected onto God, which I think is the same thing here. So, yeah, um, I think this article is very helpful. I'll put it in the show notes, um, just like all the articles I'm referring to here. And then a reminder also one that I want to add to this myself is the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. You can, um, I'll put it in the show notes too. That's Luke 15, 11 through 32, Luke 15, 11 through 32. Just a quick reminder. Um, the prodigal son was about a kid who had a pretty good inheritance. His father was presumably wealthy and he had a brother and he's like, you know what? I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be a dutiful son. I want to get my inheritance now. I don't want to wait on it. I want to go spend it and party it and live it up. And his father was hesitant. He's like, are you sure that's what you want to do? And he's like, yeah. He's like, okay. Um, I don't think that's a good idea. So he gave him his inheritance. Long story short, he went and he partied it up. He spent all his money. This could happen now, right? This story could happen now. He ended up broke and poor and he had no money left. So he ended up getting a job um, feeding pigs. And the only food he had was basically eating what the pigs ate. So he was wallowing in the mud and feeding the pigs. And he was ashamed. And he had done no, he knows he had done stupid. And he was scared to go to his father and say, look, I screwed up. I'm sorry. Can I come home? And that's how we feel with our shame, whether we've done something bad or not, because if you've been abused or mistreated, you've got that shame-based nature and you think God's mad at you and you think there's something wrong with you and you're scared to approach God. But what happened? The nature of God that parallels this story, he picked up the phone, not literally, but get the idea. He picked up the phone and said, Dad, 
I've screwed up. I've lost all the money. I partied it all away. It's all gone. I'm working at a pig farm and I'm living in the barn and I'm eating corn shucks. I feel really bad. If you say no, I understand. Can I come home? And the dad is like, don't worry about it. I'm going to send you a bus ticket. Come home. So the son comes home. He comes home, and when he gets home, his dad has a party and a feast waiting on him. He's got new clothes for him. I guess you could say he might have a new car for him if it was a modern story. But he lavishes him with resources and love and just says, come home, and I'll take care of you, and we'll figure this out. And he he give, brings him back in his home as a son, not as a servant, and they rejoice, and the end of the story is happy even though the son probably deserved to be brought back as a servant at the very least, to be punished, to have to, you know, earn his way back in. He did not do that. Jesus just took him in and lavished him with love and with resources. And God does the same for us. It's so scandalous that a lot of people are like, no, God doesn't do that. I'm telling you, if you believe what the Bible says and you believe that this is a parallel story for our relationship with God, that's what God does. Okay, so our distorted views of God can actually make us scared to believe that God's grace and his love and his generosity and his kindness are scandalously generous and lavish. But that's exactly what they are. Now, I ain't talking about no prosperity gospel and name it and claim it stuff. But I'm talking about God giving us good things in our lives because he wants to and because of God's abounding grace that that is the way he is. Okay, so the last section, the last section is specific ways to heal our distortions about God, specific ways to heal our distortions about God. So in this section, I wanted to talk about how God really is. I'm assuming if you're a practicing or believing Christian, or even if you're not, you know a little bit about the nature of God, according to the New Testament of the Bible, and um, maybe even have some experience in this area. I'm not saying that if we have these distortions, we don't have good experiences with God. There's usually some good mixed in with the bad. And so I really want to, I really want to contrast how our views of God and how he actually is are so different so much of the time. And so scriptures that talk about who we are in Christ, scriptures about the nature of God and and also just our experiences that we can recall that show us a loving, generous, kind, good God. Now, God is holy. God is discerning. God is a judge. But he is all those other things primarily as well. And so there's a source I'm going to put in here. And you'll notice that there are several sources by a woman named Juanita Ryan. Juanita Ryan came up with this. I believe she did. I, I could be wrong. But she had a piece. I'm not sure what kind of piece it was, but it was something called Recovery from Distorted Images of God. And it was by Dale and Juanita Ryan, InterVarsity Press, 1990. It might be good to go back and get the original source if you can find it on Amazon. Um, I don't know if this is one of the sources I have, but I have several sources in the show notes that refer to similar sources that were adapted by Dale and Juanita Ryan. So these are great, and I'll come back to those in just a second. But there's a chart here 
It's a PDF file, and it is two sides. There's distortion and there's true view. Distorted views of God, distortion and true view. And those distortions that I listed earlier, the nine, I've got six here on this chart that they used. And I want to read through it. I know it's a little detail. But one way to correct your views of God is straightforward meditating on the Word, meditating on who God actually is, and seeing how that is reflected in your own life and bringing that into your own life in concrete ways as much as you can through prayer, through journaling, through meditation on Scripture, through devotionals, through listening to teachings and sermons and doing coursework on this stuff, and through affirmations, that reprograms your brain. But you have to be consistent in doing it over a long-term period of time because it's repetition that reprograms your brain. And so let's look at this. And I will also, like I said, um, like I said, use this chart and come up with your own. We'll come up with some more ways, specific practices that you can use to help you reprogram your beliefs about God. And when you're doing that, you're also healing from the narcissistic abuse in your mind at the same time. So I want you to find, study, meditate on, listen to teachings on and sermons on and write about in the journal other scriptures that discuss the nature of God besides these because there are actually even better ones than that, particularly grace. Okay, we'll come back to grace in just a minute, but let's look at this chart first. This is in the show notes, distorted views of God. The first one is that God is the God of impossible expectations. And what it does is there's a distortion. It tells you what your parents may have told you and then how we project that onto God. And then on the other side, it's the true view. And it gives you an affirmation that you can use to counter that belief, that distortion. And then it gives you some scriptures that back up the truth of who God really is counter to that distortion. Okay, so I'm going to go through this list because I think it's that important. It'll take some time, but I want to read it out loud. So you can have an audio of it as well. So the God of impossible expectations. Your parents may have told you develop their children by focusing on correction and speaking to criticize versus giving encouraging words. God, how you might have viewed God as a result. One who is never pleased. His standards are impossible. His expectations beyond reach. You're, you respond to commands from God for service and obedience by self-condemnation. You can't relate to scriptures about God's unconditional love. Sound familiar? Okay. True view. God is my righteousness and he is gracious to me. His expectations have been met and I am declared approved. I am free to learn through success and failure. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 103.13-15, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower in the field. Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Number two, cognitive distortion, the emotionally distant God, the emotionally distant God. Our parents may have taught us 
discount or minimize the feelings that their child expresses, rather than providing emotional closeness by hearing and validating their children's emotions, parents ask the child to make a righteous decision to stop certain behaviors before they identify emotionally with their child. The use of phrases such as, you're too big to cry, it's just your feelings that got hurt, don't come out of the room until you have a smile on your face, don't be silly, there is nothing to be afraid of. (laughs) My favorite, you stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. That's not on here, but that's another one I know I heard and a lot of people heard. And some people think it's funny. It's not funny. It can damage a child for life. Um, God, unsympathetic and unfeeling. That's how we project that onto him. Cold and uninterested in us, cold and interested in facts only and performance. Your questions are, how could God care about my problem? Or does God care about how I feel? Affirmation. God is compassionate. He sympathizes, feels with me in my trials and weaknesses. Compassion means to feel with. And the Bible says that God is compassionate. So he feels with us in our experiences. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. For we do do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find help in time of need. Proverbs 18.24b, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Psalms 145.18-19, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Number three, distortion number three, the disinterested God. The disinterested God. Parents, busy, full of anxieties about work, money, and relationships. So it's not always the parents not well-meaning. Sometimes there's neglect because of hardships in the home and in life. But it says they work long hours and are sometimes tired and depressed. Some have learned from their own childhood not to talk about and not to feel. Um, These things communicate lack of interest in the child. Some show interest in the child's performance like academics or sports, but fail to communicate interest in the child as a person. God, how we distort it. Disinterested, too busy to care or listen, you find it hard to believe God is interested in your daily struggles or opinions. Affirmation. God is my counselor and shepherd. God is my counselor and shepherd. Psalms 139, 1 and 5. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before and laid thy hand upon me. Psalms 32, 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Psalm 71, 17. Since my youth, O God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Psalm 23, 1 through 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Distortion number four, the abusive God. Parents may do something like this. Rather than giving affection, they give violent actions which leave their terrified child 
child terrified and violated, with no place safe to hide. Rather than using words that build up, they use violent words, sometimes out of control, that communicate that their child is not lovable, valuable, or capable. These parents also give harsh punishment instead of guidance. They create experiences of verbal, physical, and sexual abuse, which leave the child viewing their parent as one who hurts. That's a very common one, maybe one of the most common with narcissistic abuse. God, easily angered and demanding. You feel that if you don't think, feel, or act just right, God stands ready to punish. You believe that his underlying intent is to harm. Affirmation. Affirmation. God is my healer and defender from harm. Psalm 147, 2 and 3. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And keep in mind that God's relationship with Israel in many ways is a metaphor for his relationship to us or an analogy for it. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, garlands are for celebrating, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. Psalm 18.2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And while this one isn't here, I would also add Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is my favorite scripture. Check it out. The unreliable God. It's distortion number five, the unreliable God. Parents, don't keep promises, are moody. They are at times angry over a small thing and at times overlook a big thing. They are sometimes loving, attentive, and kind, and other times hostile, inattentive, and unkind. Children experience both confusion and disappointment. The child believes that if he tries harder, it will be okay. Eventually, he gives up deciding he can't count on people. And this one happens a lot with parents, even if they're not narcissistic, but very, very starkly you'll have these extremes. The ups and downs are more extreme with a narcissistic parent or an abusive parent. God, one who can't be counted on, who makes promises he can't keep, you perceive that he may love you one day and cast you aside in unaccountable anger another. You feel you cannot count on him and thus only can count on yourself. So I would say that one causes more confusion than any of the others. That's that's confusing. Affirmation. God is faithful and unchanging. God is faithful and unchanging. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said... And will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Hebrews 13.8. Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Last distortion. Last distortion. The God who abandons. The God who abandons. Parents. Separation. Divorce. Prolonged hospitalization. Endless hours at the bar or work. 
Um, there are some of us who even had parents who were so involved in church and charity and helping other people. And then if you asked your parents that you needed them and some time with them, you were selfish. So it can actually be other things too. And that is even more messed up because then you feel like you're a bad person because you need your parents and you're taking them from those things and that makes you feel guilty. The thing is, is if you're a parent, your children should always come first. Not mission work, not church, not charity. Those are all good things. But if your child is neglected because of those things, you are not doing right by your child, by God, or by what the Word of God says. There's a place where it says, if you neglect your child, woe be unto you. So there's a balance. But it says, these are experiences of abandonment for a child. One of the parents they look to for survival has left them. The child even concludes that this is his fault, punishment for a past failure, etc. So he feels anxious and takes too much responsibility. The child loses security and lives with a deep fear that others he loves may also leave. And in some cases, you may have even been told you're selfish because you just wanted and needed your parent to be a parent. If you were taught that, you were not selfish and you were not a bad person. You were asking your parent to do what they should do. And there is nothing wrong with you for having asked that. That's my opinion. I could be wrong, but I that's how I see it. And I don't see a lot of scripture that contradicts that. There's nowhere in the Bible that says, don't take care of your children. It does say, shake the dust off your feet, leave the town. It does say, take up your cross and follow me. But I don't think it ever meant neglect your children. God, you try very hard to please God, hoping he will not leave. You live with feelings of fear and insecurity. You fear God will abandon you. And I've dealt with that. God, okay, affirmation. God is with me and will never fail or leave me. God is with me and will never fail or leave me. Deuteronomy 31.6 Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Luke 15.4-5 What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. It reminds me of that saying, if you were a, are a Star Trek fan, like the original series, the needs of the few outweigh the needs of the many. There are times when that happens and that's scriptural and that's what it says there in the um, scripture in Luke. Matthew one twenty three, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translation means God with us. 1 Corinthians 13.8a, love never fails. Love never fails. And that's the chart. And I'm going to um, put it in the show notes. And I want you to read it over and over and over. And I want you to meditate on it. And I want you to find other scriptures that match these concepts. Because these, I don't think, are all of them. And they're definitely not always the best ones. But they're all good. And that's a great place to start. So some practices and scriptures that can help you heal those distortions, that's one of them. But one thing is simply understanding how this projection can happen helps us to get clarity, distance, separation, and a more accurate view on who God really is and who we really are in Him. Another way, books and scriptures on radical grace 
and who we are in Christ. You can Google and use discernment there, and I'll include a list of recommendations in the show notes below. So check out the show notes. I'm going to put a supplemental list of resources, particularly books, on radical grace. Now, some of those will include the works of Joseph Prince. Joseph Prince, I'll let you use your discretion on that. Um, Use your discernment. Pray about it. Some people say he is a prosperity name it and claim it person, but I've found his teachings to be solid because they're all about Jesus. They're backed by scripture. So you use your discernment there. I'm not going to tell you one way or the other. That's between you and God. Okay. I'm not here to tell you what to do. You let God tell you what to do. Um, Next recommended resource, What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. Another one I've talked about and raved about is called The Ragamuffin Gospel. The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning is, um, he was a, a, a priest. I can't remember what sect he was in, but a Catholic priest. And his teachings are amazing. You should ch- check him out on YouTube. He's passed away, but his talks are so good. Another one just called Grace. Grace by Max Lucado. Most of you know Max Lucado, and he's really good, too. Most people like him. Um, Other things that you can do, Google lists of Bible verses on grace. Some of them are already curated for you. You can just get them, print them off, or look at them. Read them, study them, meditate on them, journal on them, and do affirmations on them. Repeating them out loud with a firm tone is one thing you can do. I always encourage you to search for these yourself, though. So that is a a curated list is helpful, but I think you should get a concordance and search for them yourself. Is it more work? Yes. Now, why would I tell you to do it yourself? Because if you look at the verses yourself, they're going to stick with you. And you can find the ones that resonate with you and the ones that God is guiding you towards. So it's an authentic experience. And then I want you to go into the Bible. It doesn't matter if it's online or it's an app or it's a a printed Bible. But go and read the surrounding scriptures to the verses that are on the list that you compile. Reason being, you get a context for each verse or verses So you don't get anything taken out of context and give a meaning to it that's not there. There's a lot of scriptures that we've misused because we don't look at the context of it, including who it was addressed to in the original text. And it's really important if you want to get an accurate sense of who God is to understand the context and the meaning of it and who was God or Jesus or whoever else talking to in that scripture. So understanding that will help you get an accurate sense of it so you know who God really is and you're not misled. So I won't curate the scriptures for you because searching for those yourself, you can find the ones you need by doing a little digging and research and the scriptures will stick with you more. Okay. That's just my opinion, but I believe in doing things the solid way, not always the easy way, because like I said, it resonates, you get the truth, and you get it right, okay? Next, start learning where your distorted views of God came from by talking it out with a therapist or a minister or a rabbi or a priest, whoever, somebody professional who knows what they're doing. Finding books and teachings that will help you discover these originals In other words, um, help you to see those separations. 
journaling about those in a safe environment. And so there's an article here that provides tips, techniques, and resources that are good ways to get started on that. And it helps you consider ways your distorted views of God may have gotten started and what some of those are. Now, this is repeating some of the distortions I've already gone over in a couple of different ways. So I'm not going to read that, but it's another article by Juanita Ryan. She's the one that came up with that distortion list from best I can tell. And it's, she gives a lot of context. And you, if you read that article, I think it'll help you to start understanding and seeing some of the distortions in yourself. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to the article, Seeing God in New Ways, Recovery from Distorted Images of God. Seeing God in New Ways, Recovery from Distorted Images of God by Juanita Ryan. And it's in the National Association for Christian Recovery. I'll put the link in the show notes. And what I encourage you to do is read the article as a place to start as well as the study, study the distortions in scriptures that contrast them in that article. I want you to do that with repetition, and I want you to start to reprogram your mind. Um, it's also an amazing free, um, there's also an amazing free study course by the same lady and Dale, her, I don't know if that's her spouse or sibling or something, but they have the same last name. But um, it goes well with the article by Juanita Ryan that I just mentioned. These are all in the show notes and the chart that I went through and on the distorted images of God. And it's a great way to go through your distortions of God created by childhood programming and to do them one at a time. First, to get clarity. Second, to separate out the distortion with the truth. And third, to reprogram your mind with the true concept versus the distortion you were taught, okay? Now, the name of the article is Seeing God in New Ways, Recovery from Distorted Images of God. Read that article, and then there is a link to a study, the study, and this is almost like a, it's like a free course, and it's great. It's it's also a PDF file, and it's called Recovery from Distorted Images of God, Six Studies for Groups or Individuals by Dale and Juanita Ryan. And I'm going to put that in the show notes. And it takes you through what's so wonderful about it. Um, it overviews how to do it. It takes you through the distortion, and then it tells you why it happens. And then there's a personal reflection. You can do that in your journal. Pray about it. Do it in your journal. There's a Bible study that gives you a counter scripture to the distortion. And then you reflect on the Bible study and what it means to you and how it can reprogram your distortion. And there's all these questions that you can do in your journal. And that will help you to go in depth with these distortions, understand where they came from, counter them with the truth about God through God's word, and then write it out. The new truth that you are reprogramming into your mind based on who God actually is. And then there's a prayer it's, there's a there's a thing where it asks you, how will you pray about this? And then you can talk it out with God so you can reconcile all these things with God himself. Now, it goes through that with each distortion, all six of them from that chart that I included. And it's long, but I'm going to include that because I think it's great. And then there's something called leader's notes. And I guess it's like how you can guide people if you wanted to help other people with this, if you're a church leader or anything like that. You don't have to be in a church to do this, though, okay? God is wherever you're at, but I'm not going to go through all that. I'm not going to read it because we're running out of time, 
But um, look at the article, Seeing God in New Ways, Recovery from Distorted Images of God. Read through it as a place to start. Study the distortions in scriptures, um, in scriptures sorry, and do that with repetition and start to reprogram your mind. And then if you want to go really in-depth, go to that PDF that's basically a course. It's free. It's a text. And it's Recovery from Distorted Images of God, Six Studies for Groups or Individuals by Dale and Juanita Ryan. Okay, so those are some practices and strategies that you can use to help you begin to reprogram those cognitive distortions caused by narcissistic abuse, neglect, childhood trauma, abusive relationships, and toxic relationships. Um, I am so grateful, though, to been able to, to have been able to do this podcast episode because I have struggled with many of these concepts myself, and to this day, I'm still working on it. It's a work in progress. And just by studying and reading for this podcast and speaking for the pod, through the, this stuff with the podcast, I'm finding that it's healing me. And that I've learned so much and repaired my views and relationship with God so much as well in the past. And it helps me see how far I've come. And also just by doing this podcast to continue on that process. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to teach you. Because if you want to learn something, teach it. And I promise you, you will learn more than ever being a student in a classroom or listening to a podcast. So if you have a chance, that um, coursework... If you can share it with other people, pass it on. You'll learn so much. You can have some selfish motives. I'm going to learn something from this. That's okay. You know, in that case, I think that's okay. But thank you so much for the opportunity to do this podcast. I'm so grateful to you, my audience. Um, if you haven't, click on, um, go to YouTube and go to Christian Emotional Recovery. Christian Emotional Recovery. I'm Rachel Leroy. And click on the subscribe bell because you will get things that you will not get in this podcast. Other things that are helpful. Um, go to the Facebook group. Go to Facebook and it's Trauma Survivors Unite Christian Emotional Recovery. Trauma Survivors Unite Christian Emotional Recovery. Also go to ChristianEmotionalRecovery.com where you can see other things and you can see the podcast itself and you can also join the email list. Okay, I'm still working on getting that started, but I want to keep you up to date on things and include bonuses and freebies that you won't get anywhere else on the email list. There's also one where you can get a free resource, um, the ACORN process for healing difficult emotions. Go to the website and you can find that as well. You sign up and you get that free resource. So thank you so much. God bless you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You can reprogram your mind. You can heal. And I am proving that through these strategies, these resources, and being able to separate the wrong learning from the right learning so that you can be who you are meant to be in God and live the life that He meant for you to live. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Christian Emotional Recovery, hosted by Rachel Leroy. For links to this week's resources and to join the discussion, check out this episode's show notes at christianemotionalrecovery.com, where you can also find links to our YouTube channel and Facebook group. Join our email list and get other episodes and resources. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review the podcast and tell a friend who may benefit from this message. See you next time. And remember, beloveds, God loves you, and you are fearfully and wonderfully made.